This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, President Trump, of course, insisting a trade deal with China was still possible to reach this week. Uh, the markets have certainly been watching this very closely. Let's get into this with Don Strassheim. He's Senior Managing Director, Head of China Research Team at uh, Evercore ISI, on the phone from Los Angeles. Also with us, Peter Cheer, Head of Macro Strategy at Academy Securities. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. That's where he's the on it. He's in Atlanta. Somebody's in Atlanta here. Exactly. Hey, Don, I want to start with you. You, you know... I have spent time in China, understand how this works. Um, how do you see these negotiations and how they played out? Is it all posturing or, you know, could we realistically get to the end of the week and not have a trade deal? There is a lot of posturing and reality TV in this, uh, Carol. But I think um, the best bet is that we have what I would rather call an arrangement than a deal. Um I'll get to that in a second, um, rather than a breakdown. If, they're, if they impose tariffs and they go from 10 to 25, this is going to, I think, reset investors' expectations all around the world that the trade war, which the U.S. started on May 29 last year, has now been restarted at a new, higher level. I think that's bad for companies. I think that's bad for equities. I think it's bad for the administration. And I think they're going to figure out a way this afternoon, this evening, to um, kick the can down the road. We're still talking. We're making progress. So, Peter, come on in here, because one of the interesting things about some of the work you've been doing of late is there was a report fairly recently that your team put together about the need to balance long-term strategic concerns with current economic needs. It feels like that's really the heart of it, of this here, that people are working on a couple different timelines. And by people, I mean these two countries. Yeah, I think there's two separate things going on. Is One, the U.S. actually declared China as a strategic competitor. So that's a big step. So here we are. We have someone we're considering a long-term strategic competitor, and we're trying to negotiate a trade deal. So we've got that. And then if you take it even beyond the trade deal, so we're really talking right now isolated about trade deal, but we just told them we're going to remove their waivers from Iranian oil. We are at odds over who should run Venezuela. Clearly, we need their help in North Korea, which may be why North Korea shot off a missile today. So there's a lot going on, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that even if we get a kick the can, we're not going to get a tra- good trade deal. We're going to get something that lets us get to the harder, more difficult negotiations of how do we treat China as a strategic competitor and still make money for the economy. Well, and I have to say, as I watch this process, I do wonder, you know, how much, you know, these are two big leaders. um, And I do wonder how much, Don, that ultimately what's going on is going to be hurtful longer term. Like, is is the relationship between the United States and China deteriorating? Uh, Carol, I agree with Peter. I think we are uh, strategic competitors. I think the uh, trade war has already morphed into the next uh, Cold War, hmm. which is going to last uh, decades, not uh, <clears throat> not quarters. 
And um, so this little uh, arrangement, a deal or whatever, uh, we're going to have is not going to change that uh, longer-term uh, uh, problem. And this deal can be, as President Trump says, a great deal, but not be a comprehensive deal. So they pick out a few little things that they can agree with and, uh, you know, do that uh, tonight. But the longer-term structural um, competition continues. Well, and, and Peter Cheer, I, I want to go back to something you said because you mentioned North Korea. And if you think about sort of the geopolitical backdrop here, you think about North Korea, you think about Iran, I think you have to – feather Russia in here somewhere as well. How does this negotiation rely on or how does it ultimately inform some of those more political uh, issues that are going on in areas outside of China? No, I think that's been one of the problems. And here at Academy Securities, we have a geopolitical advisory board made up of 11 generals and admirals who are retired. So we rely on them pretty heavily. And that's been kind of a consistent theme, that we treat each of these almost as a one-off situation. And I agree with um, the other guests that it's looking more and more like a Cold War. Almost every interesting spot in the world, every geopolitical situation is starting to pit us versus China. And I I think that's something we're going to have to deal with a little bit more aggressively, that we can't behave, that China Mm. looks like us, acts like us, trades like us. They have very different longer-term agendas. And that's where, right now, this rubber meets the road. How much are we willing to sacrifice or do to get this near-term economic win that we want versus really starting to prepare for a longer, more drawn-out battle to see who's going to shape the world? Yeah, it definitely feels like it's taken um, a definite turn and not for uh, the better, if you will. Um, Peter Cheer, thank you so much. Head of Macro Strategy at Academy Securities on the phone from Atlanta. Our thanks to Don Strassheim as well, Senior Managing Director, Head of China Research Team at Evercore ISI on the phone from Los Angeles. And I do think about that, uh, J- Jason, as, as we watch and investors are watching the yeah. back and forth. I do wonder about the longer term implications and what this means in terms of not just between the U.S. and China, but China and the rest of the world. Right. right. Well, and I felt like Peter Cheer really nailed it. it this This is largely a question of who's going to shape the globe for maybe the next 50 uh, to 100 years. That is really what's resting here in these talks between President Trump and President Xi. Maybe they'll have a phone call. Maybe they'll get it resolved. We certainly shall see. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser. So as Carol said a few minutes ago, some walking away going on, and specifically Chevron walking away from this $33 billion deal, uh, getting outflanked a bit. Uh, Occidental Petroleum winning the day, it seems. We heard from Chevron CEO Mike Worth earlier today on Bloomberg Television. Here's what he had to say. This is a win for Chevron and for our shareholders. We come out of the deal with a billion dollars. We're going to return that to our shareholders with a higher buyback. And, uh, you know, winning in any environment doesn't mean winning at any cost. In a commodity business, cost and capital discipline always matter. And an increased offer would have eroded value to our shareholders and diminished returns on our capital. This was, this was a good opportunity, but it wasn't a necessity for Chevron. And we're not desperate to do a deal. So we come out of this feeling very good. 
So Tina Davis, Managing Editor of Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg, here with me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So everybody's winning here, Tina. Nothing to see here. Just move along. Got a billion bucks. Maybe do something with it. What do you make of all that? Well, you're not winning if you're an Occidental shareholder today, certainly. And you've seen the shares come down. They're one of the worst performers in the S&P 500 Energy Index for the year. And that's because they're making a huge gamble with this. They are buying a company that's almost the same size as them and doing it in part with money from Warren Buffett. And Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett is not lending money out of the kindness of his heart. He's doing it at a substantial rate, Uh, $800 million a year they're going to have to pay him for the $10 billion investment he's making. Yeah, he knows how to make these deals. I'm curious, Tina, though. I was listening to Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, saying, wasn't a necessity for Chevron? You know, I do wonder, though, is it on the flip side, is this going to be a soundbite we're playing in a couple of years saying, this is the one that got away from Chevron, they really needed it? And I do wonder, you know, about that in terms of their long term strategy. Yeah, I mean, look, this is something that would have boosted Chevron into the big boys club, and it's sort of ironic, of course, to think of them as a smaller oil producer when they have a market cap above $200 billion. But this would have put them in the league with Exxon and Shell in terms of output and sort of right. made them a serious contender. And it also give, would have given them a huge footprint in the Permian or expanded their already uh, already sized footprint in, in the Permian. And that's the hottest place to be in the oil business right now. So again, take what Mike Worth says with a pinch of salt as well, because if you listen to the whole interview, he also says, you know, if something were to present itself, Right. If something were an exceptional exactly. value, right. we might still go in. And they've got, as mentioned, a billion dollars of walking around money right. now to sort of help fund that. Well, well and, <laughs> and, you know, and I brought this up when I, I saw Bob Dudley of, of BP a couple weeks ago. Last week, I guess it was, uh, out at the Milken Conference. You do wonder, does this spur any more potential deal making either among these players or maybe some of the other players like BP and, and the other big giants? Yeah, I mean – Basically, if you look at Occidental, they're among the companies that have sort of been rumored to be targets themselves. Yeah. So this bulks Occidental up to the place where they are a rather huge um, prey to swallow for any predator looking at them. And then if you look at the other companies in the Permian, the other kind of pure play companies they're called, uh, we saw all of their shares advance on the news of this mm. deal. And there are a few companies that we think that we hear over and over over again from analysts that they will be sort of ripe for the plucking now by anyone who's looking to expand their footprint. So those include companies like Pioneer, like Concho, like Diamondback. We've already heard about Endeavor being for sale. And these are still sizable deals, nothing as near the size of Anadarko, but this will give certainly some of the bigger oil majors uh, you know, enough room to play in the Permian because they they've all been slightly late to that play. Right. Yeah, I do wonder, too, how much time Occidental has to kind of make it all, you know, integrate synergies, all that good stuff, and make it work. I mean, I just wonder how much pressure is going to be on, on them. Well, they're going to face their first round of pressure tomorrow. They have mm-hmm. their annual general meeting I couldn't tomorrow. believe the yeah. timing of that. Have a good night's sleep amazing. tonight, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so we expect a few fireworks there. We've already heard from T. Rowe Price that they're going to vote against the board as a protest. Because as part of this deal, um, the CEO of Occidental, Vicki Halep, got that Buffett cash injection, and that helped her avoid a shareholder vote on this, which is one of the tripping points for Anadarko in terms of accepting it. They were worried that Occidental shares or Occidental shareholders wouldn't come anywhere close to approving this kind of huge dilution in, in their share, share value. So th- they will be hearing from shareholders tomorrow, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of protest votes we see. 
And then from our reporting, you know, what we've been told is basically that Vicky has essentially 12 months to kind of deleverage and prove that this deal is worth it at this price. Right. Well, and as you say, she's got an eager new uh, partner, as it were, in Warren Buffett in a place where he hasn't done a huge amount. Is that right? Or Yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of more known for his investments in the energy sector in terms of utilities right. and renewable energy. He's done a lot there. And certainly he's uh, had some exposure to the oil uh, story in, in the U.S. and the booming production in terms of uh, when buying into trains and right. other things like that. Transportation, right. Right. Yeah. So, but this is a huge bet, and it's really his, the first time we've seen him go big into the Permian. So that's an interesting vote of confidence for that region. For sure, for sure. All right, Tina Davis, managing editor of Energy and Commodities. She has been working hard, as yeah. she always does on this deal, which it seems like uh, is looking at something like completion. Carol. So be true to your school. So one of the most read stories that we've had in the past couple weeks, Carol, it may uh, rank up there for the past few months, maybe all of 2019, is about a new book. And we have the author with us. His name is George Drake. He is Professor Emeritus and the former president of Grinnell College. His book is called Mentor, Life and Legacy of Joe Rosenfield. And the reason it came to our attention is Mm -hmm. it's got quite a cameo by a guy known well throughout the markets, and that's Warren Buffett. George Drake joins us on the phone from Grinnell, Iowa. So nice to have you with us, George. Good to be, good to be with you, Jason and Carol. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book, because you know one of the things that, that really jumped out at me was that you say, this is not a universal tale. It's very much about one Midwestern man and his college and his co-conspirators to make that college able to carry on into the indefinite future. How did you decide to do this? Well, I uh, I knew the, the, the person I was writing about, Joe Rosenfield, for 21 years. I was a, a trustee at Grinnell uh, before I became the president. And so I served with him as a uh, board member and then under him as the president. Yeah. And uh, I watched him uh, perform the magic of bringing Grinnell from... Uh, a good college, but one that is not very well funded, to one that is extremely well funded. He was a person, he was a graduate of the college from the early 20s, and then became a board member, actually, eight days before Pearl Harbor. Wow. And he, he looked at, uh, he, he was good at looking at a balance sheet, and he figured out that if you withdrew the dormitories from the endowment, and in those days the dormitories were classed in the endowment, they, they produced revenue, but they, did, they didn't produce profit. And they said figured that endowment was about $78,000. He decided that his role as a trustee was going to be to build the endowment. And the endowment at Grinnell right now is about $2 billion. My goodness. And uh, it's largely the work of Joe Rosenfield and his very good friend, Warren Buffett. Well, and it's just fascinating, right? Because I guess if it had been... I don't know, forgive me, if it was Harvard or Princeton, like, we might get it. <laughs> but it is all about the relationships of these two. Tell us about Warren Buffett, because it seems like he had an awful lot of joy in working on this with his friend. Well, Warren was, uh, they, they got to know each other in 1967 through Joe's uh, cousin. And she realized that, she knew she was a friend of Warren in Omaha, and she realized that Warren would like Joe, that they should get together. And so she produced a, a dinner party, and they met each other and immediately hit it off. 
Joe got Warren to come over to Grinnell in 1968 for a symposium which featured Martin Luther King Jr. just about, I don't know, two months before his assassination. And uh, Buffett was really impressed with the symposium with the college. Joe immediately asked him to come on the board, which he did do. And so then the two of them put their heads together for, and I, I, and talk, I knew Warren pretty well, and I had a chance to interview him for the book. And I, Two questions I asked. I said, uh, do you do and Joe ever disagree in your philosophy and investments? He said, no. Hmm. I said, did anybody else on the board have anything to do with investments? And Warren said, no. <laughs> two quick no's that, were, that told a, lot, a big story. Right. And and as you say, you know, Warren Buffett had no uh, real association other than his his friendship uh, with with Joe. And it's fascinating, too, that, you know, this was Warren Buffett kind of before Warren Buffett was Warren Buffett, if if that makes sense. And no one's really been able to to replicate this largely because this was a a personal relationship. And so I'm sure every endowment manager is, is who's listening to this is thinking, well, how do I do that? Any advice to them? <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know. If you have two people as smart and, uh, I guess, fortunate as Warren and Joe, then you should turn it over to them. Yeah. You know, in general, general the and I think I agree with generally, it's a good, bad idea to have the board directly in doing the investments. They should hire talented investment advisors to do that. But in Grinnell case, it worked. And, you know, Warren said on many occasions that if he – if if he had to choose another father, it would have been Joe. They were, you know, their oh, wow. age differences was about that, and uh, it was so close that in the I'd say the last twenty years of Joe's life, he was a widower at that time. He would spend Christmas vacations with Warren out at Laguna Beach, and Warren even installed one of these movable chairs on the stairway so right. Joe could get around. Get around. It was it was a deep deep relationship. And they and it was formed actually not only personally but around their investment philosophies. God, it's fascinating. How did Warren also visit often the the school? Yes, I mean he was a, he was an active board member for yeah. I would say from '68 on to about the mid '80s. So let's say for uh, 20 years, he was a very active board member. In fact, he chaired the finance committee. And this was a time when they were beginning to succeed in building the endowment, but the college was still under a lot of financial pressure and so Warren uh had a lot to do with with you know advising and ma- and management things and I you know I dealt with Warren some in those days not as the president but seeing him operate as a trustee and he was tough uh and uh you know he fig- he Warren was not a person who thought colleges were run terribly well right and so they needed a lot of advice on on budgetary matters and so on so he was quite active and then once the college, you know, the endowment really began to strengthen, then he pulled back from that kind of immediate involvement. And then it was more a matter of Joe and Warren talking almost weekly, sometimes right. biweekly, about investments. So, George, uh, about 30 seconds before we got to let you go, but uh, tell us what that boost in the endowment allowed you to do as the president and, and your successors in terms of shaping the education there at Grinnell. Well, the, the, I would say almost the biggest thing is that Grinnell, we, we would classify ourselves as among maybe a t- group of 25 or 30 uh, highly selective small liberal arts colleges. Right. And in a way, we're, in many ways, we're the most accessible of all those colleges. We have a, a huge financial aid uh, operation, 
and uh, you know almost everyone in the school is on uh, scholarship, right. and they're probably twenty. 25% of our student body who they had to pay could only afford a community college. So wow. they're getting almost mm-hmm. everything covered. And so they, the quality obviously has grown uh, as the college can pay better salaries and, right. and provide better facilities. But right. also uh, it really has opened up, uh, you know, a really open access. We're, yeah. we're need blind with respect to admissions, one of the few schools that still right. is. Right. So George- anyway, I'd say that's it. Listen, this was a great story, and so glad that you got the opportunity to tell us about it and also write about it. George Drake, Professor Emeritus at Grinnell College, his book, Mentor, Life and Legacy of Joe Rosenfield, and it really does talk a lot about the relationship he had with Warren Buffett. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master, Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In your eyes, the light. Okay, that is a perfect song. Thank you very much, Paul Brennan. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm just going to steal the headline that's uh, online and in the magazine this week. The company behind Gore-Tex, you know, that material, Jason, that we all have in our coats, you know, they keep us dry, but they let us breathe at the same time. Well, the company behind Gore-Tex is apparently now coming for your eyeballs. It's a fascinating story, and it's a story that the magazine, these types of stories, these deep dives into companies, uh, what they're going through, how they're reinventing themselves. Uh, this is what Business Week does so well. Writing one of the week's uh, features, and it's actually, I believe, the cover story, is reporter Drake Bennett. He's here with more on Gore-Tex. Drake, it is a great story. Um, Gore-Tex, there's actually a parent company, right? That's right. It's called uh, Gore, W.L. Gore. Uh, it's named after the founder um, who uh, left DuPont like 50 years ago and decided he was going to start this company around this molecule that he was obsessed with. And so many things to to dig into with this story, Drake, but uh, let's start with the culture of the company because that's a thread that goes through, pun intended, this entire story because it's a different kind of company. It's run in a different way. It attracts a different sort of employee, and they interact with each other differently. That's right. I think now, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, you have a lot of talk about, you know, not horizontal companies, companies where engineers can be engineers. But at the time, uh, this was a a, a really unusual idea. And I think uh, Bill Gore leaving DuPont, this iconic kind of mid-20th century giant corporation, wanted to start something very different. Uh, and so that's what he did. I mean, it, it, it really almost is like he had this idea of kind of these tribes that would sort of be very democratic and everyone's opinion would matter. And, you know, ideas would really live or die on whether people are interested in working on them. And that, despite the fact that it's a much bigger company now, a much more profitable company, still is something that very much defines the place. Is it a company that needed to also redefine itself? Yeah, I think you know, part of the... What I want to do in this story is write about innovation in a way mm. that was kind of hands-on and specific and really, you know, material. And I think Gore was interesting, A, because what they do is, is, is fascinating in this geeky way, but also because they have this history of having been very innovative and figured out all these different applications for the stuff they make. And then, but there really was this sense that they lost a little bit of momentum and that they, that they needed to try to get it back to keep, to keep growing. It feels like stories like this rise and fall basically on the writer's ability to sort of get access to the right people into the right places. And just from the from the get go, you take us into a a surgery, essentially on a rabbit, uh, I believe. Tell us what's going on in that scene. 
So one of the one of the kind of out there ideas that that Gore is is gambling on is this idea. I mean, they're already in the human body. I mean, they make stents and patches and things like that. But they really think eyes are a, a, a new potential market for them. And where they're starting is is corneal implants. So these are artificial corneas to replace uh, ones that have become opaque because of disease or damage or something like that. So and this was uh, you know something that really bubbled up from a couple engineers. They happen to be from India, where this is a where corneal blindness is a big problem. Uh, and they've gotten it to the stage where they're doing tests on on rabbits. They're working with this leading corneal transplant surgeon, and so. They let me sit in and watch as she she puts one of these in a in a rabbit eye, um, and uh, in all the kind of gory detail that involved. Well, that's what's so funny because I know when you, you, we've talked about this before um, with you that when we started reading the story, I thought, oh, this is going to be like a biotech science story, you know, labs and the scientists and this doctor. But it really is about what's going on at, at this company. Um, I do wonder, too, how much they, you know, because they're facing more competition, right, Drake, right. on their kind of core business. So they've got to look into other avenues. That's right. I mean, you know, they're they're privately held, so, you know, there's not a lot of figures out there. But I, I think it's... it's uh, Definitely the case that, you know, for example, Gore-Tex, which is a huge product for them, they basically invented a whole market of this performance outerwear stuff where you pay $500 for a ski jacket. That is something where it's a maturing market. There's more alternatives now. Uh, and so they're really having to try to push into into whole new areas. And so what's next uh, for them? I mean, this product that you're talking about with eyes, you're going to start testing in humans 2020, uh, right, I believe, yeah. but it won't be on the market till uh, 2026. Company okay in in the meantime. They've still got a good uh, underlying business. Their biggest challenge in 30 seconds. Well, I think it's, you know, their history has been really jumping into these industries that seem to have nothing to do with what they previously did. And, and the thing that they have is this ability to work with these materials and figure out new ways to use them. So you know, eyes are one potential. Um, I think the human body is going to be a big market in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. We're getting older. We need replacement parts. So that's something they're looking at. Drake Bennett, uh, what a great story. He is Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. He's got the cover this week. The cover is stunning in its own right. The visual cover, uh, an eye, it sort of makes you stop and think and stop and look. And it's a story very much worth reading, Carol. Uh, yeah. I think probably safe to say our must-read of the week. At least it's we, mine. I think we said this is the kind of story that you teach in business schools. I'm driving in my car I'll turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Brent Schutte is back with us, chief investment strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. One hundred and twenty-five billion dollars in assets under management. Brent joining us. Uh, Brent joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. Hey, nice to have you back with us. A uh, bit of a wacky day, uh, and the mood certainly this week in the equity markets has certainly been a lot more pessimistic on concerns about a U.S.-China trade deal not getting done. Right now, we've got stocks 
off their highs of the session, but certainly well off their lows on expectations of uh, that something might ultimately get done here. Brent, how do you see it? How does it factor into how you look at companies and make investment decisions right now? Thanks for having me. I always like being on the show because I like to get my fix of the cars before, um, <laughs> from the introduction. <laughs> so cool. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Um, from the from the near term, certainly it's a risk. I mean, um, the president has sent an anchor. I think it's an anchor, which I think is an important terminology in game theory negotiations of tariffs increasing by 1201 um, tonight. I, I guess I think that is something that he would probably not like to have happen. Um, but certainly would be willing to do so. But I think the more important thing for longer-term investors is that I think when push comes to shove, I think the president will back away um, because he does value a market that moves higher and an economy that moves higher. And I think that's what we saw in the fourth quarter. And so while there may be some near-term volatility, I do think it's in both countries' best interest to actually have a deal or at least some semblance of a deal uh, in the coming months. Um, and so I think that's kind of the bigger, longer-term outlook that I would have investors focus on rather than the back and forth like we had in the fourth quarter and we're having this week. And so, Brent, as you look at this, how much should investors worry about a deal getting done in the short term versus the longer term implications of executing that deal and enforcement of that deal? Is that something that people should factor in or are we just going to have to take that as it comes? I think we'll take that as it comes. I mean, I I guess to me, if I I take a step back and I, I kind of put this into a context of a U.S. economy that's still doing very well, so I know we all kind of know the narrative. We had a strong jobs report last week that's kind of been forgotten about. Um, we have a consumer that's That seems like healthy. a long time ago, Doesn't Brent. Sorry. <laughs> we have a consumer that's getting real wage gains. So I keep hearing this narrative that wages aren't rising. They are. They're up 32 to 3.4% year over year against a backdrop of 1.6% inflation. And most importantly, you have productivity increasing. And so I think the natural tendency and bias for the market is higher. Um, but I do think there are some guardrails. And so let me tie this in with what I mentioned before on the tariffs. I think the economy continues to push up, but it has guardrails to the upside and to the downside. I think in the long term, I guess intermediate to long term, I do think the president and the administration is a friend of the market. But in the short term, they can be a foe. And so I think of that in this terminology. The president right now has said before, and is probably doing it right now, he's willing to spend some economic upside or some market upside to push his trade agenda. But when push comes to shove, I think how we got to where we are right now was the fourth quarter. He backed away. I think of the Fed as very much the same way. I do think in the intermediate term, the Fed is absolutely your, your friend. I think they play the final role in knocking off any um, economic recovery, and I don't think they have any desire to do so. But in the short term, they can be your foe um, because they also are tasked with financial stability, and they don't want to blow bubbles. And so, you know, each one of them, I think, would probably, on the upside, spend a little of that. So the Fed may hike rates later this year, which would might surprise people. The Fed, uh, the president may continue to push a trade war uh, agenda. But on the downside, when push comes to shove, the Fed is easing, the, the president backs away. You know, I was thinking about, as you were talking, a million questions came to mind. But, Brent, I do wonder, too, how smart investors are that if we do ultimately get a U.S.-China deal, even if it isn't a real strategic one or smart one, will investors just blow past it because they're just glad something got done? I, I think so. I think, it, I mean, the things that kill markets are shocks. Yeah. So everybody talks about kicking the can down the road, and that's exactly what um, most policy is designed to do, because then it's not such a shock to the market. It's more of, a, uh, of an event that happens and unfolds over time. I mean, think about Brexit. We've been talking about Brexit for three years. Um, and at the time Brexit happened, people thought that might be the end of the world. Uh, and we're still talking about Brexit. 
Um, and so as long as it's not a shock, as long as it happens and plays out over a longer period of time, I think that's more the important um, analysis that an investor has to look at. So would a Fed rate increase be a shock to the market? To me, it would say the economy's strong enough to deal with it, right? We've been looking for a little bit more inflation. Like, this is kind of what we want to be back to normal. But I do wonder, would a Fed rate increase be read as a shock by investors? I think that's what happened in 2018. So I think both of those um, corrections that we had, we had two in 2018, they both started because of the Fed. The first one was because um, the Fed decided they were going to tighten more than what the market originally imagined back in early of 2018. The second one was because Jerome Powell made those comments that um, people misinterpreted um, as he was going to kill the U.S. economy. And so I do think that there is the near-term potential for a correction later in the year because I don't think the Fed, unless this trade war drags on and things get much worse, big caveat, but I do think in general the U.S. economy is pushing forward, and I don't really foresee a reason for a rate hike yet um, as we move throughout the year. And so what worries cut, you what, what worries right. you the most, Brent? Well, I mean, I do think um, the standpoint of all the policy uncertainty, so I mentioned productivity, yeah, um, which absolutely is one of those things that people have said wouldn't come back. So I think people throughout this whole economic recovery have wanted to end this expansion early because they thought it was different, to which we said it's not different, it's unique. So all those different things that have happened in the past will happen again. It's just taking longer because the scars of the Great Recession were so deep that it kind of put this um, temporary, um, you know, bias towards lower animal spirits. Um, I guess I worry about the tariff um, and trade wars potentially dragging out so long that they cause companies to not invest in plant property equipment, which could potentially um, keep productivity at bay, which may raise inflation and then would cause the Fed to rethink the wisdom of their letting inflation run hot. But I don't think that's a likelihood. All right, Brent Judy, thank you so much. Really appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Chief Investment Strategist over at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management, $125 billion in assets under management. Uh, Brent joining us on the phone from Milwaukee. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.